Our scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 3. Many of you remember the scene of how God begins to grab a hold of Moses and meets him at that burning bush. This is that story. And it fits as we're beginning a new series that I'm calling Great Turnarounds. One of the amazing things that we see when we look at the narrative sections of the Bible is that it introduces us to a variety of people. And uh, they're all flawed people. But it's fascinating to see how God creates these turnaround scenarios where he uses the most unlikely people. So this morning I'm starting with uh, a question in mind regarding Moses. How could God choose and use a runaway murderer to lead his people out of their slavery in Egypt? It's one of the great nagging questions I've had since I was a teenager. You know how when you read the Bible and you get all these questions and how does this stuff fit? And so I'm, I'm answering in a sense a question that I've been living with for the last 50 years about how, how did that happen and what do we learn about God through this? Verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the mountain that will later be described on another name, uh, Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid of God. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will go, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would guide us this morning. Give us clarity into your word. Give us clarity into how it is that you see us and how you want us to look at those around us. We need your wisdom in knowing how to live out our faith. Live out our faith before people who are watching us, people who are learning from us. How to live out our faith through all the ups and downs of our lives and the challenges that come our way. I ask this morning that 
you would continue to work your healing presence through our congregation, through our ministry together and our life together. And I ask as well that you would give us insights into how you use people who often have broken stories along the way and how you recondition people and you prepare us to rise above our failures and our challenges and to offer our lives to you. Thank you for every person who's here. Thank you for the way that we discover you and connect with you and find some of our questions are answered. I pray that you'd make these scriptures come alive for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Police stopped a teenage girl in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. There were some complaints that a car had been seen going around her neighborhood in reverse for some time. When they stopped her, the, the girl told the police that her parents had let her use the car, but she had put too much mileage on it. She said, I was just trying to unwind some of it. Patton Robinson used to tell the story of the 1929 Rose Bowl game between the University of California and Georgia Tech. Near the end of the first half, a player for the Cal team named Roy Regals recovered a fumble and got turned around on the play. It's easy to happen when things are crazy on a football field. And he ran 65 yards in the wrong direction until another player from his team, who happened to be just a little bit faster than him, caught up to him and tackled him just shy of the other team's goal line. <laughs> California was stunned by that. They ended up taking a safety on that series that ended the, the first half, and it added two points to Georgia Tech, which in the end of the, by the end of the game ended up being the winning margin. As the teams headed off for the locker room at halftime, everyone in the stands wondered what Coach Nibs Price would do or what he would say to Regals at halftime. Regals sat down in the corner of, a locker, a corner of the locker room and he was holding his face in tears with a towel over his head, just embarrassed and humiliated. Coach Price was unusually silent during that locker room time until the referee came into the locker room telling the Cal team that they had three minutes before the second half would begin. And Coach Price at that point called out, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. And everyone filed out and headed toward the field, except for Regals. He was still sobbing, and Coach Price went over to him, and he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half will start the second. And Regals responded, Coach, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined my life. I couldn't face the people in that stadium to save my life. Price put his hand on Regal's shoulder and said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game's only half over. Regal's went back, and the Tech players said afterward they'd never seen a man play football as possessed as Regal's did in that second half. He blocked a punt. He played hard. But Cal lost the game 8-7, to seven, the difference being the two points from that safety that was set up by his mistake. For years after, he was nicknamed Wrong Way Regal's, and Roy decided to use that notoriety of his mistake to encourage other players who had made critical mistakes in sporting events for decades and decades, so much so that not only was his story re repeated, but he was loved for the way that he used it. In 1991, he was inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame, and in 1998, he was posthumously inducted into the University of California's Hall of Fame, too. Here's the point. 
Sometimes critical mistakes are not the end of the story. The story of Wrongway Regals connects with this new series that we're starting today that I'm calling Great Turnarounds, how God uses second chance people. Each week we're going to learn about the recovery work that God does within his people and this morning we're going to focus on the amazing turnaround in the life of Moses. And so our topic this morning is God and the Recovering Murderer. What do we learn about both of them? So welcome back. I'm glad to see you here at North River Church today. Uh, We're a church that works hard to do ministry well and when we get knocked down we get back up, we learn what we can and we focus on the mission ahead. My warmest greetings to all of those who are here in Pembroke today and especially to those of you who are watching online. You are important to us and we are, we are sharing this experience with you in multiple locations. We're just glad that you're a part of this. If you're new to our church, I want you to know that there's a place for you here at North River. Wherever you are, I would, I would uh, appreciate if you would connect back with us and communicate back with us. There are some ways to do that. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, you can text the word hello to this number, 781-227-8765. If you do that, uh, we'll, we'll begin a, a text message email. Whatever information you give us through that. If you give us uh, an email, I'm going to send you a note back. If you get a, give us a phone number, we're going to try to call you back. Or you can do that on our website, northriverchurch.org. Look for the I'm new button, fill out that connection card, or you can ask for a connection card over here. Or if you want to do it the direct way, send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. I'd love to hear your questions and your thoughts. What do we learn about God and Moses as a recovering murderer. We, we think of Moses most of the time as Moses, the leader of the people. Moses, who, who was the faithful one even when the people rebelled. But Moses' start isn't so neat and uncomplicated. And so today's question is, how can God use an escaped murderer to lead his people? A couple of thoughts. Here's the first one. God doesn't rush character development. This is one of the great discoveries that we find through the story of Moses. One verse that I want you to look at, chapter 2, verse 23, first part of the verse. It says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. This is the first phrase that I want you to see. During that long period. What does that mean? What is that referring to? Well, the history of God's people in Genesis ended with Joseph and his family down in Egypt. Joseph had been sold as a slave by his brothers and he rose up to a very high place within the cabinet of, of Egypt's pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, who tr- ended up treating all of Joseph's family, his brothers and his father and everyone who came down very, very well. But after Joseph died, a new king rose up who did not remember Joseph. We're told this in the opening verses of Exodus chapter 1. And this Egyptian king forced the Israelites into an increasingly, increasingly miserable forms of slavery. And it just kept getting worse and worse. This went on for a long time. Now, one of the questions is how long? Uh, generally, thinking, uh, generally, we think that there's a 400-year period of time that they were in slavery. However, that's not quite accurate. Uh, I once did a study on this because a teenager asked me one of those questions at the door. How long were they really in slavery? Was it really 400 years? Or f- because the Bible also says 430 years at one point, and yet it seems like it's a shorter period of time. It's one of those questions where I didn't have an answer, and I went back during that week looking. 
not to give you all the dirty work, but part of what we're told is in Genesis 15, when God made his first promise to Abram when he was 75 years old, he said to him, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and then they will be enslaved and mistreated there. If you look closely, it says that they will be strangers in another country for 400 years. It does not necessarily imply, although you could read the sentence that way, that they will be in slavery for all of those 400 years. Well, it turns out they weren't. The 400 years had to do with the process from when God made his promise to Abraham and when Moses delivers the law on Mount Sinai and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. There was 430 years in that time for all of his life and for a long time afterward the Israelites lived as strangers in other lands and that's part of what God was referring to here with regard to the 400 years. After Joseph died somewhere in that time frame is when everything turned south for the Israelites in Egypt and a king made them slaves. When you add up all the dates of who died when and how long this happened, I've pinned it down to somewhere between 80 and 144 years that this period of slavery went on. That's a long period of time. It's bad enough, but it wasn't 400. The description of the Israelites calling out to God is an interlude in the Moses story. As we open up the book of Exodus, chapter 1 focuses on Egyptian slavery and the defiance of some Egyptian midwives, which is how Moses happened to be born rather than put to death as an infant. We see there that the, the people of God valued life very, very highly, and these two midwives risked their lives to defy the king of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, it mostly focused on Moses' unique status as both an Israelite, because people knew his history, but as a member of the well-educated Egyptian ruling class, his mother had put him in that basket and set him loose on the river, and the daughter of the pharaoh had brought him up as her own child after she found that basket. But chapter 2 also tells about a conflict that Moses found with his split identity as both an Israelite and as an Egyptian, and one day he saw an Egyptian slave master who was abusing two Hebrew men, and Moses looking left and right to make sure nobody would see, ended up killing this man, and he buries his body, and, but the word leaked out, and Moses fled Egypt as an alien on the run because the Pharaoh was angry at what Moses had done. So Exodus 2.23 statement during that long period is reference to a 40-year period of Moses' life. Roughly, he left Egypt and fled when he was 40 years old and he spent the next 40 years in the land of Midian on the other side of the desert. And he tended sheep for 40 years there trying to forget all about Egypt. During those 40 years in Midian, God was working in and on Moses. When he left, he was a one-man wrecking crew who took justice into his own hands and tried to bring things about through his own power. The result? He left Egypt as a 40-year-old fugitive trying to forget his past. While God listened to Israel's cries, he was developing Moses into a man he could use, a man who would be quite different from the 40-year-old who tried to take, take matters into his own hands. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. During that long period, Moses was becoming a shepherd, not a prince. Here's, this is the way, here's the nugget for this. This is the way that God often works. Yes, the people of Israel were suffering during this time. But God didn't rush the process. Yes, God was aware of their cries, 
but God didn't rush the process. Yes, Israel needed a deliverer, and it would be Moses, but notice that God didn't rush the process. So this is our first observation from the Moses story. God doesn't rush character development, no matter how profound the need. Here's a second lesson that we can learn. God is often at work in the silence. Sometimes we think there are great gaps in biblical history where we don't see God doing a whole lot. Here's one of those periods of silence where we're not told anything about what happens really during this 40 years that Moses is in, the, in Midian. But God is at work in the silence. We pick this up with verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. We learned four things about God and what he was doing when it seemed like God was silent. First, he heard their cries and their groaning. Second, as he heard their cries, he remembered his covenant. It's a covenant that he'd made with Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Third, he looked on the Israelites in their misery. He was gathering information. He was watching what was going. It was bad, but God was still giving attention to it. And fourth, he was concerned about them. How often we are tempted to conclude that God isn't listening or that God doesn't care when he doesn't move on our time frame. This is one of the great dilemmas that we have, especially when you're, you're new in faith or when you're young in faith. We tend to throw up our cries to God and bring God our requests. And when God doesn't answer the way that we want him to or in the time frame that we want him to, we can conclude God doesn't really care or God isn't listening to me or God doesn't answer my prayers or maybe God isn't there, he doesn't exist. I have to tell you, based on the life of Moses, when we do that, that's a huge, huge mistake. God's calling for patience and realizing that he's overseeing this long-term picture of what he's doing throughout the human race. And he does often act on the immediate, on the personal, on the intimate level. But his first concern is the grander picture, the bigger picture. And he is often at work in ways that we don't see. When you're tempted to think that God doesn't hear, God doesn't care about you, remember the story of Moses. Remember this opening line from Exodus 2, 23, during that long period. There are long periods of silence when God is actually at work even though we don't see it at the moment. Reflect on these four observations about what we hear about God and learn about God through these verses. He heard, he remembered, he looked in, he was concerned. At the right time when the leader was ready, he would send Moses. That's what we just read about in Exodus 3. But Moses wasn't ready at the start of this period. That's part of what verse 23 is telling us. God had work to do in Moses. And for Moses to become the kind of leader that he wanted him to be for this monumental project of, of bringing the people of Israel out of the most powerful nation in the world, it was going to take a lot of change in Moses' life. When he left Egypt, he was a self-appointed wrecking ball filled with, re with revenge and rage. But God had something else in mind, a leader who relied on the strong arm of God, a leader who trusted that when God speaks, God keeps his word, a leader who would do it God's way. 
And Moses was only ready to lead that way after meeting God at the burning bush 40 years later. Third lesson for this scene with God and the second chance murderer. God often calls second chance leaders. Let me say that again. God often calls second chance leaders. People who've messed up somewhere along the way and yet he's not done with them. I'm so, so glad that this is what we find about our God. Exodus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. God is speaking here. And I have seen the, the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Notice what he says to Moses. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? There are several people who are given second chances in the Bible. Think of Jonah, who ran away from his first assignment to bring the message of uh, God's mercy after repentance to the nation of Nineveh. Think of Samson. After taking God's warnings for granted and living recklessly, he asked for this one more chance to glorify God at the end of his life. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus when he was walking on the water, and then he denied that he even knew Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' trial. The woman that Jesus met at Sychar's well, after years of abuse and five failed marriages, she ends up being a person that God uses very, very greatly. Thank you, Max. <laughs> or think of Paul. Paul had been the chief persecutor of Christians when Jesus called him. And here's Moses. Moses had been tending sheep for 40 years. Now, in our world, we tend to think, why didn't God use Moses at the age of 40? At the age of 40, Moses would have been strong. At the age of 40, Moses had influence. And at the age of 40, Moses knew all the right people in Egypt and maybe he could make things happen. We live in a culture that glorifies youth. But Moses wasn't ready until he was 80 years old. He couldn't depend on that kind of physical strength anymore. He couldn't force things his own way. His connections with Egypt were long gone. They'd been mostly forgotten. And if they did remember, he ran away as an absolute failure at that point in time. Exodus 7.7 tells us that Moses was 80 years old when God sent him to speak to Pharaoh. He was 80, his brother Aaron was 83, and this was the team that God had in mind. But that experiment that he'd had before hadn't worked out so well. And now, after 40 years of tending sheep on the other side of the desert from civilization, God had Moses right where he wanted him. By himself, Moses was a failure with a once grand past. And now look what he asks. Who am I? Who am I that you would use me? Who am I that I should lead the people out? Who am I that you would send me back to Pharaoh? Who am I that you would include me in the midst of a major part of the big story of what God was doing? Someone suggested that at this point, Moses fit a description of the Beatles' nowhere man. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, singing all his nowhere songs to nobody. But God was about to do something great through Moses in God's own timing. 
Now, look at what God has done with these second-chance servants that we talked about a moment ago. Jonah ended up leading, leading a citywide revival after first running away. Samson had a final moment of glory over his enemies, even though he was blind. Peter boldly preached in Jerusalem and was the apostles' leader after being restored to ministry by Jesus personally, despite denying that he even knew Jesus when it counted. The unnamed woman at the well had such an encounter with Jesus that it led to many Samaritans within that village coming back and listening to Jesus and following Jesus. They first said, we believe because of what you told us, but now we have seen Jesus. Paul planted churches, encouraged leaders, and wrote half the New Testament. And God chose Moses to lead the Israelite slaves out of the most powerful nation on earth at, a, at, a, at that time in a way that both humiliated Egypt and honored God. Have you considered what God can do with second-chance servants today? Maybe you're out there thinking, God's never going to do anything great with me. I've blown my chance. My ups and downs have been so great. My failures have been so prominent that I'm just glad to sit quietly in the congregation and never put my head up, never put my hand up. Well, your obedience to Jesus might become the turning point for an entire family. Your willingness to serve may inspire several others to serve for the first time and to serve well. Your ability to share your story of God's redeeming work in your life can jumpstart the spiritual trajectory of someone else who has given up and thrown in the towel. Your faithfulness to rise above past failures can lead to an unimaginable future. That's what we learned from Moses. When Moses leaves Egypt, he is an absolute runaway failure, wanting to go away on the other side of the desert, desert and never be heard from again. But God. Knowing that God operates this way moves us from failure to faith again and again and again. Here's the big idea for this morning. God leads us to recovery from past failures by assuring us of his presence for adventures ahead. Let's look at how God restored this recovering murderer. Four things that he did. First, he replaced his self-appointed failure. This is when Moses rushed in and made himself the justice warrior for the day with a God-appointed calling. The whole business of God meeting him at the burning bush and having him take his shoes off was because this was holy ground, but God had a mission for Moses. And he was finally humble enough where God could use him and Moses would do exactly what God told him to do. Second, he trained him to shepherd people on the world stage by shepherding sheep in obscurity. Moses learned how to lead people by leading sheep. And not in some big prominent place, but in obscurity. Very often, the way that God equips us and the way that God begins to shape us is with whatever he gives us to do in obscurity. And then over time, he gives us an opportunity to do that in front of other people or do that while leading other people. But he wants to know who we are in the quiet times. It took him 40 years to get Moses to the point where Moses was ready. Third, he moved him beyond recent insignificance. That's the 40 years in the desert tending sheep by promising his guidance for the future. When Moses meets God at that burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed, that grabbed his attention, 
Moses says, who am I that I should do this? And God answers, I will be with you. That's all. He didn't tell him how he would do it. He didn't tell him how the story would unfold. He didn't tell him that there'd be these ten plagues that would come on the people and God would lift all the plagues one by one through Moses' word. He didn't tell him that you're going to go down to the Red Sea and by my power you're going to stretch out the arms and the sea's going to part and the people are going to walk through in the middle. He didn't tell him about the manna or the quail or all the different provisions that were given along the way miraculously. He just said, Moses, you're on a journey. I will be with you. I'm sending you go. That's often the way that God leads in our lives. He doesn't tell you the next chapter. He doesn't tell you the way it's going to end. He doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen along the way. He doesn't say, Paul, I want you to start a church with 10 of your friends, and here's how I'm going to provide. You know, we didn't know any of that stuff 32 years ago. He just says, this is what I want you to do. Go. I will be with you. I think those are the most encouraging words in the Bible. That the presence of God is with us in whatever he sends us to do. Luke and Jess, when you go down to Costa Rica for a month, have you been to Costa Rica? She has for a little bit. You don't know exactly what you're going to find there. Inca Link is starting a new mission in Costa Rica, and you guys are going to help encourage those who are starting that work and to see what's going on and to bring encouragement. So here's the one encouragement I can give you. God will be with you because he sent you. He will be with you at each step of the way. You've already found that out when you went down to Peru and you led the team down there for a while and the years that you put in, God provided at each step of the way. And his presence is his greatest gift he can give you. Here's the fourth thing that that God did with recovering Moses. He equipped him to rise above his past by reminding him that he is the God of the present. Have you ever noticed that the the special personal name that God reveals to Moses? He says, you know, if the people ask, who is this God who sent you? What am I to tell them? What is the name of this God? And the first time that God gives this out, and he says, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. Now, this is the name that our Jewish friends often will not pronounce. It's the word that we sometimes call Yahweh or Yavah in Hebrew. And it literally means I am, or I am that I am. I'm beyond explanation. I'm, I don't need somebody to prove that I am or where that I came from. I simply, I am. But notice that is present tense. I am. He answers him with the present tense reality of God, that he is not the God of the past, the God who's locked in the pages of the Bible. He's not only the God of the future when Jesus comes and restores the earth to the way that it should be and brings the kingdom of heaven to earth with him, He is the I am of today. And one of the greatest things that we can ever hear about our God is that he is the God of the present just as much as he is the God of the past and just as much as he is the God of the future. And you're thinking through the trials and the challenges and the difficulties and the blessings that come your way this week. Realize this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with God that is alive because of your followership of Christ, The God who is with you every day describes himself in the present tense by saying, I am, and I am with you. I can't think of a more encouraging way to end today's message. Father God, I pray that you will allow us all to walk with you. And for those who are reaching out to find you, 
Hear them when they cry out to you today saying, God, I want to know you. I want to know you in my life. It seems like you've been silent when I've cried out to you before, but I want to know you. Let me sense this week your presence. God, forgive us of our sins. Keep lifting us up and providing us with the courage and all the resources that we need to serve you well today as we serve our families, as we serve our neighbors, as we serve your church. In Jesus' name, amen.